Scripture reading this morning is sermon text is 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 34. I will not read the entire text this time. And it happened after this that the people of Moab, with the people of Ammon and others, with them besides the Ammonites, came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from the, beyond the sea, from Syria, and from Hazazon Tamar, which is in Engedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek Yahweh and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from Yahweh and to seek from all the, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek Yahweh. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of Yahweh before the new court and said, O Yahweh, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and you will save. And now, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives and their children, stood before Yahweh. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Almighty Father in heaven, we praise you for this word to us this morning. We ask that you would give us clear minds and calm hearts, drive out every distracting thought, give us a longing and desire to not just hear this morning, but to obey. Help us not to waste this brief time. Help us to learn from it and to grow from it. Do this by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the more encouraging changes in the American Christian landscape over the last 25, 30 years is the growth of optimistic eschatology. Um, for a long time, I grew up, many of you probably grew up in situations where the, old, the church had literally no hope. There was no chance of the church ever succeeding in time and history. Everything was about this small remnant that would be left at the very end, right before the rapture, right before Jesus would come back. That was the hope. That was the desire. There was no intention nor hope of advancing the Great Commission, of the nations actually being discipled. Everything was pessimistic. Everything was going to die, and especially the church was just going to wither down until there were very few Christians left. Well, that is still the majority viewpoint in our country. However... There has been a growth of Christians who actually believe that the kingdom can advance in time and history, that the Great Commission can be fulfilled, that Jesus is doing a great work in our world here and now, and that his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This growth of optimistic eschatology, postmillennialism, whatever you want to call it, it's been glorious to see because it is biblical. It's what the Bible teaches. Okay? But as that has grown, one of the questions that comes up is how does this happen? How does the kingdom advance? How do we grow the church? How do we grow the go out into the world and conquer for Christ? And there's lots of ideas floating out there. Is it political power? Is that what we need? Do we need more political power? Is that the key that would unlock it? If we had all of a sudden had a Christian legislature and all of a sudden had a Christian president, a Christian vice president, would that unlock the kingdom all of a sudden? And then, boom, the river would go forth and the nations would be discipled. Do we need greater financial resources? 
Some of these churches, there's a church nearby here, you drive by, it looks like a temple. It's huge, huge white church. I think it's over on Lake Wheeler Road. Huge white church, massive thing, okay? And you just think, man, there's a lot of money there. What if we had that money? You know, sometimes you drive by Roman Catholic churches as well. One of my daughters asked, Dad, why don't we have churches like that? And I said, well, because we don't have the Vatican giving us millions of dollars. That's why we don't have churches like that. Okay, so do we need more money? Is that the key? Is it power? Is it financial resources? Do we need more people? What is the key to advancing the kingdom? How are we going to win? How are we going to advance? And what I want to do this morning is use 2 Chronicles 20, a passage that I really love. So that's why I'm preaching it this morning. I really love this passage. I also think it's a great passage to reset at the beginning of the year, especially election year, reset and think to ourselves, what does the Lord teach us about advancing the kingdom? How do we defeat the enemies? How do we win the battles? How do we grow? What are the keys to victory in the coming years? Okay, and I think 2 Chronicles gives us a great sort of insight and picture into that, all right? So 2 Chronicles, Chronicles, just briefly, a brief overview of Chronicles. A lot of people look at Chronicles and think, oh, this is a repeat of Samuel and Kings. It's just the same thing over again. Well, it's really not at all. Second, first and second Chronicles are very different from Samuel and Kings. First of all, if you remember your history, you have Saul, David, Solomon, and then after Solomon, the kingdom splits into two. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, okay? Well, Chronicles does not deal with the northern kingdom at all. Samuel and Kings do, but Chronicles does not talk about any of the northern kings except as they interact with the southern kingdom. It doesn't discuss them at all, whereas Kings obviously does. Chronicles also begins with nine chapters of genealogy. And this is probably why Chronicles is not among the favorites. When you ask, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Oh, First Chronicles. First Chronicles. Very few people say that. Why? Because Ezra, who probably wrote it, decided to start with nine chapters of genealogy, not the way you begin a bestseller. <laughs> He's like, I was like, oh, okay. And there's more genealogies as you move through First Chronicles. It talks about the temple and the Levites and different things like that. Lots and lots of names, okay? Also, it's written by Ezra to the Israelites who were turning to the land. Okay, so this is the context for First and Second Chronicles. Israel was small, and this is important. We'll talk about this. Israel was small. Israel, Israel was not mighty. They were not great. They didn't have a lot of resources. They were weak when they came back into the land. And so throughout First and Second Chronicles, Ezra emphasizes the weakness of Israel and the power of God to overcome that weakness and help Israel defeat their enemies. That's what a lot of what Chronicles is about. Okay, so it isn't a repeat of Samuel and Kings. It isn't the same thing over and over again. It has a lot, it really bears careful reading. If you get to that, don't skip it. Don't be like, well, this is Chronicles. I've heard this all before. Don't skip it. It contains some very important passages and uh, very enlightening, especially when we talk about preaching the word and liturgy. There's a lot of stuff about the priest and the temple and sacrifices in there. Okay. All right, so we're going to jump in the middle here. Second Chronicles 20. This is the fourth king. Jehoshaphat is the fourth king after Solomon. Okay, so you have Solomon, you have Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, and then Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat is the fourth king after Solomon, and he starts in verse chapter 17. We're not going to cover all of Jehoshaphat. He starts in chapter 17, and he's, he's reforming. He defeats Ahab, uh, and just, there's lots of stuff going on there, but I'm just going to zero in on chapter 20, and really, in a lot of ways, this is going to be a, a high view of chapter 20. There's all these little details in there that I really would love to discuss, but we're just going to kind of stay high. John MacArthur says there's like a worm's eye view of a text and a bird's eye view of the text. Well, this morning we're doing a bird's eye view of the text. We're not going to dive in and cover everything in depth in there. You could spend a lot of time in a lot of these passages, but especially in 2 Chronicles 20. So I'm going to outline the passage, what's happening, and then give some points 
that we can get from it about how we are to conduct our warfare against the world and against the, the enemies that are out there, okay? So here's, the, here's sort of the outline of the passage. Jehoshaphat gets word that Moab and Ammon, who are descendants of the daughters of Lot, Moab and Ammon, these Ammonites and the Moabites, are gathered together along with some other folks, maybe Syria and different people like that, are gathered together, and they're going to come and march against Israel. A great multitude is the word used. A great multitude, in verse 2, is going to march against Israel. Jehoshaphat fears. He fears, in this case, he doesn't mean he fears God, although he does, but the th- that phrase in verse 3 means he feared the army. He was afraid of the army. It ties back to that. But he did, because he feared that army, set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast, Throughout all Judah. So he gathers all of Judah together. Judah comes from all, people come from all over Judah. Remember, Judah's the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's kind of out of the picture. The southern kingdom, they all come and they stand in the house of the Lord before the new court. There have been numerous temple reformations in the previous chapters, okay? So they all come and stand before the Lord in the temple. Jehoshaphat prays. He does this great, magnificent prayer, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, this great prayer, asking God to deliver them. And then they all sit and wait in verse 13. They all sit there and wait for God to speak. And a prophet arises, Jehaziel. Maybe you didn't know he was a prophet. Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, a Levite, arises and tells Israel, tells Judah, do not be afraid nor be dismayed because it's a great multitude, for the battle is not yours but is God's. Tomorrow I'll go down against them, and he goes on to tell them, God is going to defeat them right before your eyes, and you're not even going to have to fight. And his prophet comes and gives this word that God is with him. Then Jehoshaphat bows to the ground along with all of Israel, verse 18, bows to the ground with, along with all of Israel and worships Yahweh, bows and worship. Then the next day, they get up early in the morning, they go out singing, and this is one of my favorite things about this passage, is they go out singing, here they are going to this great multitude, this huge battle, this huge army, and they march out singing. Jehoshaphat gives sort of an encouraging word, a, a pep talk there. In verse 20, he says, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And so they all rise up, and they sing to the Lord, and they say, Praise Yahweh, for his mercy endures forever. And as they do this, the Lord set ambushes, against Moab and Ammon. Now, somebody asked me this week, what does that mean? What did God do? Well, it doesn't, it's not real specific, but I would not be surprised if this was angels. Okay, we have a couple instances in the scriptures where the angels do warfare against people. Remember, they slaughter the Assyrians. The angel of the Lord comes down and slaughters the Assyrians. And there's a passage in, for David where David praised the Lord about a battle, and the Lord says, when you hear footsteps in the trees, it's kind of crazy bad, when you hear marching in the trees, then you'll know you can go up and fight. And who's marching in the trees? Well, it's the Lord, the host, the armies of God. And remember, I'll come back to this in a minute, but in 2 Kings 6, remember Elisha's house is surrounded, and he's got a servant, and the servant's like, we're in trouble, Elisha. It's over. We're going to be defeated by, this Syri- by the Syrians. And Elisha prays, said, Lord, open his eyes. Because more are with us than are with him. And the servant goes out, and there's chariots of fire all around the mountains. Okay, so I don't know what God does here exactly in verse 22, but I think it's something like that. The angels come down and start fighting with them, and all of a sudden the Moabs and the, the Moabites and the Ammonites are like, okay, we're in trouble here. And they start fighting with each other, and they begin slaughtering each other. So they destroy one another. They destroy each other. So verse 24, So when Judah came to the place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were dead bodies fallen to the earth, fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. No one had escaped. The armies had been destroyed. 
So Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil. They found among them abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil. Three days gathering the spoil because there, were so, there was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the Valley of Barakah, which means blessing, for there they blessed Yahweh. Therefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Barakah until this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, with Jehoshaphat in front of them, to go back to Jerusalem with joy. So they came out rejoicing, and they go back rejoicing, for Yahweh had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of Yahweh. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that Yahweh had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Okay, so that's sort of the basic um, outline of the passage. And what I want to do this morning is just give us a few um, pointers or, or principles we can pull from this passage. First, and this actually goes back to 19. First, reform always leads to conflict. Okay, so at the end of chapter 19, Jehoshaphat instituted, has instituted all these great reforms in Israel. He's done all this great stuff. He's changed it. He's appointed judges. He's appointed Levites. He set up the temple correctly. He's done all these reforms. And then immediately, in chapter 20, you have conflict. You immediately have the enemies coming in. And this is almost always how it works in Scripture. When God's people begin to reform things, when they begin to change, and this can be in your own life individually, it can be in your life, our life as a church, when we begin to try to follow God, change things, become more holy, become more righteous, inevitably there are going to be attacks. That is inevitable. So we should not be surprised by conflict that arises from that. And if you think about like Gideon, when he tore down the idols, that happens when the um, Moabites come in and attack Gideon. But especially think about the life of Jesus. And I want to keep coming back to the life of Jesus as we talk about this. The life of Christ was one where he came and he challenged Israel to change. He challenged Israel to repent. He challenged Israel to grow. And all throughout, he had conflict. All throughout. And especially, I want you to think about his baptism. He was baptized, and then immediately after his baptism, he was sent in the wilderness to fight against Satan. So this is how it works. When we decide to reform, when we decide to grow, when we decide to change, you can expect the tax. And sometimes we're surprised by this. We're like, Lord, I'm doing the right thing here. Why are there attacks? Why are there enemies? You shouldn't be surprised. This is how it works all the time. Now, one note here, just one warning. Just because you're in conflict, okay, and I have to say this every single time, because we live in the internet age, and anyone thinks they just because they're fighting on the internet, they're doing the work of Jesus, okay? Just because you're in conflict doesn't mean you're in righteous conflict, okay? So we're not talking about petty squabbles, fights over nonsense. We're talking about you growing, or us growing, us maturing, us growing in holiness, and then the enemy comes in. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about us going out and getting in fights on the internet with people. That's not what we're talking about. I think a lot of people assume that that's what's going on. So a couple of groups that need to understand this. First, some of you here just want to be left alone. And you're like, well, I just want to grow and love Jesus and grow and be left alone. Well, that's not going to happen. Okay? As you grow, you're going to get people, family members, friends, neighbors who are not going to be happy with what you're doing. And maybe they'll say something. Maybe they'll stop talking to you. Maybe it'll be more than that. Okay? But in the Christian life, we want to lead a peaceable, quiet life. That's what our goal is. Paul tells us to pray for that. Okay? But often the world will not let us. Often the Moabites and the Ammonites do come in and attack. And then we have to deal with that. Okay? Deal with that. So do not be surprised by that. So when we have physical, there may be physical attacks. There could be legal attacks. And I think especially I want to think this morning about us corporately as a body. Okay, obviously it applies individually, but especially I want to think about us as a church. As we get bigger, 
as we do more stuff, as we go to the abortion mill, as we go and pray, like last year Pastor Garner went and prayed at the Sodomite Parades of, and sang psalms at the Sodomite Parades up in Raleigh. As we do these things, we can expect attacks, legal attacks, attacks on our reputation, maybe even eventually physical attacks. It's not outside the realm of possibility. When that occurs, we shouldn't be like, oh. we should be like, oh, that's the way it's going to go. That's always the way it goes. When God's people choose the reform, he sends in enemies, okay? Second thing, so that's the first thing. We should expect, as we reform and grow, we should expect attacks. Don't be surprised by that, okay? Secondly, our enemies always appear larger and more formidable than we do, okay? And this is kind of the pattern throughout all of Scripture, again. Here in this passage, Joseph, and Jehoshaphat does not have a small army, by the way, okay? If you go back into chapter 17, 18, Jehoshaphat doesn't have this tiny little army, Okay, he is a pretty good-sized army, but Jehoshaphat is afraid because the Ammonites and the Moabites are larger than he is. And that is almost always the case. The resources and the power of our enemies are almost always greater than the resources and power the church has. There's very few situations where that's not the case. Think about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Okay? Yes, the Israelites had numbers, but they had no weapons. They did not have an army. They were weak. And God said, I'm going to bring you out. Okay? God brought them out from the mightiest nation on the earth at the time and delivered them into the land of Canaan, or brought them to the land of Canaan. Think about Gideon. I've already referenced Gideon fighting this massive army with 300 men. But also Jesus. Okay? Jesus. Here's Jesus. Who would have thought Jesus and his 12 disciples there, well, 11 after Judas, okay, 12 disciples would have gone and conquered the world? Who would have thought that? They don't have the resources. They don't have the power, okay? They don't have the ear of the Roman emperor. They don't have legions. They don't have armies. They don't have chariots. They don't have weapons. How is the church ever going to conquer? How is that ever going to happen with the resources they have? And this is always the case, okay? We look out at the world, and we look at the political powers out there. We look at the economic powers. Think about all the men in, in charge of the largest companies in the world, and they're pagans. They hate Jesus. They hate God. They've got all the men and women in the biggest places of power in politics. Almost all of them to a man, to a woman, hate God, hate Jesus. How are we ever going to succeed? How is it ever going to happen? Well, the answer is, that's always the way it is. It's always been that way. And the church still wins. I said this a couple sermons ago, the Roman Empire is gone, and the church is still here, okay? Those empires go. They disappear. And the American empire one day will be gone. All those wicked men in places of power will be tossed down and destroyed. Jeff Bezos, all those guys with all that financial power, they'll be tossed down and destroyed. And the church will not. The church will keep marching on. So one thing we have to remember as we go is to remember, as, as we march forward, is to remember that the enemy always appears larger than we are. Always. That's not, an, there's really not an exception to that. Now, why does God do that? Why does God allow that to happen? Why doesn't he give us a big army? Why doesn't he give us, you know, millions upon millions of dollars? Why doesn't he have us elect some superstar Christian president who could change all the laws? Why doesn't God do that? Okay. Because the battle is primarily spiritual, and he wants us to understand this. This does not mean the physical doesn't matter. It doesn't mean it doesn't affect the physical. But the battle always is spiritual. It's always about wickedness and those forces out there. Paul says this in um, Philippians or Corinthians. He says, or actually Ephesians. He said, we fight against principalities and powers. And we kind of think about that with the New Testament. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, of course. And, but the Old Testament is true as well. And I've already referenced the re Elisha in 2 Kings 6, but Elisha in 2 Kings 6, what's happening there is he's reminding his servant when he sees those chariots of fire, he's reminding his servant, this is a spiritual battle. It's not a physical battle. It's not about numbers. It's not about chariots. It's not about money. It's about God's blessing and God's power in the heavenly places. It's about his armies, okay? His armies. So when the enemy comes in, when the enemy attacks, or when we go out, however you want to look at it, okay, we have, our first impulse must be to flee to the Lord. Okay? And this is why the enemies are large and we are small. God wants us to flee to him. He wants us to depend upon him first. Now, it doesn't mean there's nothing to be done. There are things to be done. But first, we flee to God. And this is what Jehoshaphat does. Jehoshaphat, the first thing he does is he seeks Yahweh's face. Verse 3, he set himself to seek Yahweh and he proclaimed the fast throughout all Judah. Okay, the first thing we do is we flee to God. Now, there's two temptations here, two things we're tempted to do besides that, okay? We're tempted to flee to the world and rely upon the world's resources. And Israel does this repeatedly in Chronicles and Kings. So back in chapter 16, for, I won't read the whole thing, but in 2 Chronicles 16, Asa makes a treaty with Syria. So all throughout Israel's history, Israel is constantly, instead of relying upon the Lord, they go to these allies, and they make allies with Egypt, or they make allies with Syria, or they make allies with this, this group or that group, and God constantly rebukes them for this. Okay, so listen to what the Lord says. And at that time, Hananiah, the seer, came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said, because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on Yahweh your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on Yahweh, he delivered them into your hand. And this is 2 Chronicles chapter 16. So Hananiah, this prophet, is saying to Asa, you trusted the Lord here, and he delivered you, so why are you relying on Syria? And what's interesting is Jehoshaphat does the exact same thing. So in our chapter here, chapter 20, he relies on the Lord and flees to God, but at the end of the chapter, he goes and makes a treaty and to get some ships. And God causes all the ships to be destroyed in the sea. He goes to make a treaty with the enemy of God. Well, in this case, the northern kingdom, who is in rebellion against God, he makes a treaty with them, and God says he acted very wickedly in making a treaty with a wicked man. So one of our temptations, when the enemies come in, is to try to make alliances with wicked men to defeat other wicked men. Okay? And the, God's word is clearly against this. This is not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to trust the Lord. And it doesn't mean you can't work with ungodly people. I want to be clear. It doesn't mean you can't work with ungodly people. But you don't want to covenant with them. You don't want to be united to them. You don't want to be dependent upon them. Okay? I'll give you one illustration from my, um, from my life. I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And when I went there, that school took no government money. Like, you could not get a government grant. You could not get a government loan. Nothing. You could not pay for your schooling with any government money at all. You had to pay for it out of pocket, and they had donors and alumni who did this. Well, the last several years, they've begun accepting government money. Uh, they've begun accepting government money. Now, they've also become a lot more flexible in their doctrine. Okay? Now, I don't know if those two go together, but they often do. Okay? When you're trying to make the powers that be happy, you often begin to compromise. You often begin to flex in your doctrine. And when I look back at my school that I went to, I wouldn't recommend anyone going there anymore because of this. And that's not the only reason, obviously, but it's a sign. When someone allies themselves, when a, when a, when a Christian institution or a Christian church allies themselves with wicked men, there's a problem. Okay? There's a problem there. And that's what we should not do. So our impulse should be to flee 
to the Lord. And this is what Jehoshaphat does. And that means prayer. That means prayer. It means pray to God. And in this case, it means corporate prayer. Prayer is a sign of dependence upon the Lord. It's a sign that you understand that the battle is not yours. The battle belongs to God. Okay? And this is a dramatic situation, but it's never different. It doesn't matter how dramatic our situation is. It doesn't matter how big or small the enemy is. The battle always belongs to God. It doesn't mean you don't work, but it means you worship first. Worship comes first. Prayer comes first. And that's what Jehoshaphat understood. He went to God first. Okay? And especially, I think, together corporately we go to God. Notice this isn't just Jehoshaphat praying. It's not just him in his room praying. Of course, you can't do that. That's a good thing to do. But it's not just Jehoshaphat praying. He calls all Israel together to pray. Okay? So when the key to advancing the kingdom, the key to adv- defeating our enemies is really, and this is not going to shock anyone in here who's been with us for a while, the key is really corporate worship. This is at the center. Coming before the Lord with our prayers together, lifting those up to God, him hearing us, and him going out and acting. Because when we do that, we are understanding that the battle is God's. Okay? If we think work comes first and worship is second, then what we're saying is our work is the key. We're saying the battle is really ours. The battle is not God's. Worship takes the priority. Work comes in behind that. Okay? Work comes in second. Right? So Flee to the Lord in prayer. And what that really means is, in this context, and really in the context of Scripture, it means we worship together. We come before the Lord and worship. That's what we do. We seek his face. I think especially in times, now obviously we come every single week, but especially in times when there's struggle and strife, we want to come into worship with sort of this expectant, with expectant prayers, asking God to hear us and answer our prayers. Notice here also that Jehoshaphat prays God's word back to him. Okay? Praise God's word back to him. He does this in several places. But notice in verse 9, he says, If disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction. This is a direct reference to Solomon's prayer in in 1 Kings 8, where Solomon prays. and says, pray towards the temple. Pray in the temple. Okay, so it's a direct reference to that. He also references Abraham. He also references them coming out of Egypt. He does all this. Our prayer life especially our corporate prayer life, cannot be effective if we don't know the Word of God. The Word of God is central to making our prayers effective. Praying the Word back to God, praying the Word, His promises back to Him. Lord, here's what you have said. Here's what you have promised. Here's what you have told us. Okay, And that's what Jehoshaphat does here. I think a lot of us, we kind of flounder in our prayer life sometimes because we don't have that. We don't have the Word of God as uh, saturating our minds as we would like to. And if you listen to the prayers and you listen to the songs we sing, you'll see they are saturated with God's word. And that's not just happenstance. That's because we know God loves to hear his word prayed back up to him, okay? So at the center of our advancement is corporate prayer, corporate worship. That's at the center. So we come in and we pray and we wait and we listen. Verse 13. Again, verse 13 is one of my favorite verses in the whole Old Testament. Now all Judah with their little ones, their wives, and their children stood before Yahweh. They all sit there waiting for God to speak, expectantly waiting for God to speak. And God comes to them, and the, God, God's word comes to them through Jehaziel, the prophet, and he tells them this word. So how does that translate to us? 
Okay, how does that work in our lives? We don't have prophets. We don't have people that come to us that way anymore. Not, no one's going to walk into our homes and say, okay, here's the word from God. But you do have the pulpit, and you do have the preached word. And what I want to say here is the connection between corporate prayer and the preached word, between the prayers of God's people and the preached word. When God's people cry out, he often answers that prayer through the preached word, through the prophetic word given up here. Not a new revelation, but through the scriptures given up here. And here's what I mean by this. Let's say you're going through a very difficult, hard time in your life, and you're looking for answers to that, okay? Well, you're not going to come in here, and I'm not going to give you a, a physical diagnosis of how you can get feeling better, okay? That's not what's going to happen from the pulpit, all right? I don't do those sort of things. But what the pulpit does do is help you put that suffering in the context of your relationship to God. Helps you understand how that suffering, how that hardship, how that pain is going to be used to advance the glory of God and help you grow. It puts it all in context for you. Okay, so it's not, the sermon's usually not going to answer specific questions in your life. Should I take this job? Should I marry this woman? Should I invest my money over here? It's usually not going to answer those questions. Okay, that's not what the Bible is for generally. Okay, but it is going to tell you God loves you. God is going to care for you and can give you those big truths that help put all of those decisions in the proper context. And this happens, yes, it happens as you read the Bible. You should be reading the Bible daily. It happens in those situations. But it most often happens, and you should expect it to happen when you come in here on Sunday morning. You should expect to hear the word of God to you when you come in here on Sunday morning, that he has given you something you need this morning in answer to your prayers and in answer to our prayers, okay? So we pray in the word, and God answers us through the preached word, okay? So they, just don't waste the sermon, okay? Don't waste the sermon. God is speaking to you every Sunday, okay? Come in here and say, pray, Lord, I want to hear your voice, and come in here and listen to the sermon, okay? So, that, so we got prayer and the word, and that's kind of the center of it. What I want us to understand is the key to our kingdom advance, the key to work, uh, winning the world, the key to the, uh, fulfilling the Great Commission is the worship, prayer, and the word, these two, these two things together, okay? Then, okay, let's move on. Again, kind of flying high here. Then Jehoshaphat give thanks, gives thanks to the Lord before he sees the victory. This is a very striking thing. Verse 18, they've just heard the word. Okay? They haven't gone out and seen the dead bodies yet. They haven't seen that yet. All they've heard is the word. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. All Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before Yahweh, worshiping Yahweh. They treated it. They believed that word before they ever saw the victory. Okay? And this is really what faith is. Okay? This is what faith is. Trusting that word of God when you do not see, when you do not see the victory. And if you go to Hebrews 11, and this long list of faithful Christians in Hebrews 11, almost a lot of those, especially the big ones, Noah, Abraham, Moses, okay, a lot of them followed after the Lord when it did not make any sense. When they did not see, Noah didn't see the flood before he started building the ark. God didn't get like give him a vision, you know. It wasn't like huge rain. I mean, there's debate whether it even rained before the flood happened, okay? There's a discussion whether he, he may have never even seen rain before, okay? And God's like, listen, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to spend 100 years building this boat for a flood I'm promising you is going to come, okay? And you just got to trust me. And I was like, okay, I'll trust you, okay? That is faith. Abraham, I want you to get up from your family, leave all this, and I want you to go to this land. That I'll show you. You know, I'll show you when you get there, you know? And there you go. 
Moses, you're, you're in Pharaoh's house. You have all this glory. You have all this power. You have all this stuff. Moses, I want you to get up. I want you to leave that. Leave that behind. I want you to go live for 40 years on the back of the mountain and then come back, okay, and lead my people out of Egypt. That's what I want you to do, okay? And this is how it is every time, every time. We give thanks before the victory. Faith isn't just obeying what God says. It is rejoicing and assuming that what he has promised is going to be fulfilled. And, of course, Jesus is the great example of this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays. Let this cup, he knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. He knows he's going to bear the wrath of the world on his shoulders. Uh, he knows he's going to have pain that we can't even imagine. He knows that. And yet he trusts his father and says, I trust you, Lord, for my father, and I'm going to move through that. That's his human nature. Trust him as he moves through that. And he does for the joy set before him. He knew there was joy on the other side. He hadn't seen it, but he knew there was joy on the other side. So for all of us, okay, part of what we have to do is rejoice even though we haven't seen the victory yet. Okay? And this can be, this can be, I mean, you can see this in a lot of areas in your life. Raising children. <laughs> this is a good one, right? Raising children. God says children are a blessing, okay? Well, they don't feel like a blessing when they're wiping poop on the bathroom walls for the third time this week or doing something like that. They don't feel like a blessing when that's happening. When a teenager shows up, he wants to talk at 1130 at night, and you're like, no, okay, all right, I'll talk to you. Does, is it a blessing then? Is it a blessing? Yes, it's a blessing then. So we have to see it and rejoice in it before we see the victory. And children are just a great example of this because it takes so long, so long to get them where it's so long to get them where they need to be. <laughs> it takes a while. But God has promised, given promises to our children, given promises to us, okay? And we trust those promises. We trust that. When you're going through hardship and suffering, you trust God in the midst of that. You say, Lord, I'm going to not just obey you in this. I'm going to rejoice in this. I'm going to delight in your goodness here. And this is what Israel does here. They rejoice. They delight. And they haven't seen the victory. So what I want to encourage you with, with this, is that when you hear the word, we pray, the word comes to us, the word, believe that word, but also rejoice assuming the victory has already happened. Because it has. God has given us these great and precious promises. That's what he said. And then we sing and we rejoice and we smile and we feast like they do in the following verses, despite our enemies all around. You know, Lord set a table for us in the presence of our enemies. The enemies all around. They're all around. They hate us. They want to destroy us. The politicians, who knows what's going to happen in November? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in November. It's going to be a mess though. Pretty much guarantee that. But we're going to feast. We're going to eat. We're going to sing. We're going to rejoice. Why? Because the victory is assured. We don't have to see the dead bodies. We know the end of their story. We know how it's going to end, okay? And then just one final note here before I conclude is that often the Lord gives us victory through the confusion of our enemies that we don't, a lot of times they eat themselves up. And this happens a lot in scripture. More, the more I read, the more I see this happening. Paul does it. Jesus does it. Numerous people put the enemies of God against each other. Okay? And this is often how God does it. You see this now with some of the sexual perversion. There's people fighting with one another, uh, pagans fighting with one another about which perversion they should follow and how they should do it and all this sort of things. They war with each other. Sin destroys, and our enemies will ultimately destroy themselves. We a lot of times can sit by and just watch. We pray and we worship and we build and we reform our homes and we do what we can. And I'm not saying we don't work. I'm not encouraging not working. Uh, I'm not encouraging not going down the abortion mill and things like that. But often these people destroy themselves. And that's exactly what happens in our passage. We watch. They get confused. They, they 
tumble and fall, and we go in and we plunder. And that's what happens. We pick up the wreckage, and we say, hey, we can take that. Oh, we'll take that, and we'll use that. And we'll build, keep building the kingdom. And this is what happens after they come out of Egypt. This is what happens when they go into the um, land after the exile. This is what happens all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's people um, plunder after God has defeated their enemies. So my encouragement to you as we march into 2024, and this is, this is not new for a lot of you. A lot of you know this great truth. C.S. Lewis said the, the truths in our lives need to be fed. They don't just automatically live. If you don't feed the great truths, they die. And one of the great truths we have to remind ourselves at the beginning of the year is, is that worship and the word are the key to victory. What we do in here on Sunday mornings, this is the central act in advancing the kingdom of Christ. This, not that there's other, not other things. This is the wedge that advances the kingdom of Christ at the beginning. It's not our resources. It's not our power. It's not our money. It is our worship and our prayer. It is the word of God and prayer. That is what advances the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so grateful and thankful for the power you have given us in your word, in worship, by your spirit. We pray that you would continue to help us to grow and mature. Give us grace and faith and strength as we march forward in this coming year. Help us to honor you with our words and our thoughts and our deeds. Help us to mature. Help us to trust you in difficult and hard circumstances. Help us to trust you as we raise our children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue the worship of the Lord by bringing his tithes and our offerings. <laughs>